He started his career as a part-time police officer, eventually became sheriff, was elected to that position, then appointed U.S. Marshal. He's here to talk about his career, which involved terror training and arresting law enforcement officers. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. In the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, we are joined by special guests talking about their experiences, their realities of investigating crimes, plus those who have experienced horrendous trauma, police, first responders, military, and victims of crime share their stories. Hi, I'm John J. Wiley. In addition to being a broadcaster, I'm also a retired police sergeant. Be sure to check out our website, letradio.com, and also like us on Facebook. Search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. If you want to be a guest on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, simply contact us. It couldn't be easier. You can send us a message on Facebook. Look for and like the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show page or email j at letradio.com. That's J-A-Y at letradio.com. Contact us from New Jersey. We have Jim Plusis on the phone. Jim is a repeat guest. He was originally on a show long, long time ago, and you'll understand why in a few moments. As a matter of fact, I re-released the episode as a podcast, a special episode of the podcast, November 29th of 2023, titled Police to Sheriff to U.S. Marshal, the Jersey Lawman. Jim, thanks so much for your service. Secondly, thanks for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. My honor, John, and thank you for your service, and thanks, thank you for what you do for law enforcement in general uh, in the country. We need guys like you out there. I, I appreciate that very much. i got to go into your story, because for those who did not listen to the first episode, Jim is a unique character. He started as a, am I correct, a part-time police officer? Yes, summer officer. And then you were eventually elected a sheriff. Then you yes. were appointed U.S. Marshal. Yes. And you you are now still doing something dabbling in the law enforcement field, am I correct? Yes, I'm chairman of the New Jersey Casino Control Commission. Brother, when are you going to do this thing called retire? <laughs> you know, I, I enjoy what I'm doing there, John. So just like yourself, I'm, I'm hanging in there for a while. I, I still think I can add some value and I, um, you know, hopefully someday I'll retire. But, you know, I have a few things I want to finish here at the Casino Control Commission and, um, you know, I'm going to hang in for a while. So you are in the Atlantic City area, is that, uh, that correct? Yes, yes. We uh, we have an office in Trenton, our state capital, and then our main office is in Atlantic City, where the nine casinos in New Jersey are located. Man, my hat's off to you. You you dabble in law enforcement your entire life. Now, me, I got hurt and retired young, and I was not allowed with my pension to do anything law enforcement related. You went from one law enforcement career to another, to another, to another. Uh, and you would think exactly. that, that you would be at a point where you and your significant other or people that are close to you would say, okay, enough's enough. I've had it with you. <laughs> Uh, you know, as you know, John, it's a family event. You know, when you're in law enforcement, the whole family's in law enforcement. And, I, and I've been blessed that my family has been supportive, my children, my wife, over the years. And um, as you know, it's not easy being, you know, the son or daughter of the sheriff or the U.S. Marshal. I mean, you know, they really have to behave. And, yeah. um, you know, they're always under scrutiny. You've, you've seen it with your family. And it's also the the, the stress level. And uh, I I never was a big 
agreer with this concept of generational trauma, you know, trauma being passed down from one generation to another until you, my daughters started telling me some stories that they're still affected. They're still affected from stuff when I did when I was policing years ago. Yes, I believe that. As I say, it's a the whole family's involved with law enforcement. They, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, we go, before we get into your story, now you started as a as summer police officer. Did you eventually think you would wind up being U.S. Marshal and working for the Casino Commission and Sheriff and all those other lofty positions? No, I never did, John. I, you know, I enjoyed being a policeman. Um, you know, it, I, I was very happy being a local policeman. And then, um, ironically, the mayor at the time, he was a friend of mine. We would play basketball together. And he said, oh, you ought to run for sheriff. I never even thought about it. And um, it's, it, his name was um, Jack Bittner. He was the mayor of Ocean City back in the day. And um, he he was literally was the one. He talked me into it. And then I... Um, I, as I say, I never had any desire. Ironically, when I left the police department to become sheriff, I took a pay cut. Yeah. So my, my wife said, why are you doing this? So, um, you know, it was never in the cards. I, I enjoyed being a local policeman and, um, you know, I just had good opportunities all the way around. And, um, at the same thing with being U.S. Marshal, I, um, the transition team, President Bush, 40, 43, called my the transition team called me asked me if i wanted to be u.s marshal and i turned it down um the first time they offered it to me and then they called me back around three weeks later saying you know sheriff if you're interested in this you know you got to let us know if not we're going to move forward and then i i said okay i i would consider it and um I enjoyed being sheriff. Ironically, I was up for election at the time. I was running unopposed. So um, my wife said, why Why do you want to do this? You know, you enjoy being sheriff. You know, I enjoy being the wife of the sheriff. Why do you want to do something different? But I thought it was a great opportunity to, to serve at the next level. And uh, I took it. And I I do thank the Lord I did because it was, it was a great experience being the U.S. Marshal for nine years. And I have a friend, a, a guy I worked with in the Baltimore Police Department, his son just graduated from U.S. Marshals Academy, I believe in Glencoe, Georgia. Yes. And his first assignment is in Arkansas. Uh, he's a Navy yes. veteran. And, you know, the U.S. Marshals, they're a no-joke. Uh, people always think of court security. That's part of what they do. But uh, we encountered them quite a bit on the street. And I think in our last interview, I mentioned I was detailed the DEA, uh, a task force in Baltimore, and we covered the entire East Coast, but I was deputized as a U.S. Special, a special U.S. Marshal. Uh, and yes. these men and women, they hit the streets. They really, they're out there. Yes. The U.S. Marshals arrested more fugitives than all the other federal law enforcement agencies combined. So, you know, we're the, since 1789, we've been the, the fugitive hunters, you know, for the, for the nation. And they do stellar work. And I'm sure we can get into the details of that. Uh, by the way, my wife, I call her the boss, and I are, are watching. Of course, it's very much dramatized for television, but uh, about Bass Reeves. And what a phenomenal character, part of history uh, for law enforcement officers that, that a lot of people don't seem to know about. Exactly. Yes, yes. And there were so many that were U.S. Marshals. And by the way, when did the U.S. Marshals Service start? Because they've been around for a while, haven't they? 
Yes, um, 1789. Yeah, that's no joke. Yeah, with the law, the oldest law enforcement agency, you know, it's 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 in the Constitution, you know, um, that they the, the Judicial Act of 1789 set up the marshal service in regards to the court system in the United States, and we've been te- protecting the the court system and the judges since 1789. We're talking with Jim Plusis. He is author of the book Jersey Lawman. He started as a part-time summer police officer, became elected sheriff, was appointed U.S. Marshal. He is still involved in law enforcement with the Gambling Commission State of New Jersey. His book is Jersey Law, Man, A Life on the Right Side of Crime by George Ingram and Jim Bluses, which we'll talk about in a bit. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back. What is the Newsbreak app, and why should you follow the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast on the Newsbreak app? Newsbreak is your number one local news app for current events, free live news for you and your community. Download the Newsbreak app today for free and be sure to follow the Law Enforcement Talk Reddit Show and podcast on the Newsbreak app. Back to our conversation with Jim Plusis on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. He went from part-time summer police officer to elected sheriff to U.S. Marshal in New Jersey. Still involved in law enforcement. He's co-author of the book, Jersey Lawman, A Life on the Right Side of Crime by George Ingram and Jim Plusis. Find this whole transition from a, a, a street cop, and I say that with the utmost respect. When I say that, that's that's a compliment. Some people view that as a term of uh, an insult. I don't. You start as a street cop, and that's admirable, and then you became U.S. Marshal. I'm cutting out a huge chunk of your life, but when you became U.S. Marshal, things changed dramatically for you, didn't they? They did, John. Um, You know, it's a different function all the way around, but... um Ironically, um, you know, the, the U.S. Marshal there, you know, there's an, an investiture where you get sworn in. And um, ironically, that was on um, March 23rd of 2001 um, up in Newark. Um, all the judges get invited and all the, all the law enforcement for the state. So we had we had a couple hundred people there and the chief presiding judge, um, Judge Bissell swore me in and um we had some sheriffs say a few words about working with me and um at the time um the u.s attorney was chris christie so um we were friends um i knew him when he was a county commissioner when i was county sheriff so he spoke at my investiture and um it was a very nice event and um newark is around two hours from my house i live in the southern part of the state so um my family was there, and then after I was sworn in, you know, the chief deputy um, showed me around the building, showed me my office. So it was a it was a nice event. So um, we came home, um, and we got home around eleven o'clock that night, and we went to bed. And um, around twelve o'clock, I get a knock on the front door. Wait, and I one hour outside. later. One hour later. Yeah, one hour later, I look outside and I see. A, I live in Ocean City. I see an, I see an Ocean City patrol car. So I go downstairs and I answer the door and the, the patrolman says, Sheriff, um, you know, because he knew me as Sheriff. I said, oh, what's up? He says, um, you got to call the U.S. attorney. I said, I got to call the U.S. attorney. I said, I just left him. He says, yeah. He says, Chris, do you want you to call? So I 
I get on the phone and I call and I said, Chris, I said, what's up? And I said, we were just together. And he said, well, um, you've been briefed. I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, tomorrow we're arresting one of your deputies and one of your um, office staff. And I said, Chris, I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, well, um, I'll meet you tomorrow morning at 530 at the Grover Cleveland rest stop on the New Jersey Turnpike, and I'll brief you on what's going on. I said, okay. So I get off the phone, and then um, my wife says, what's the matter? I said, well, I got to go to work early. I got to get up around 3.30. I got to meet um, Chris up at the Grover Cleveland rest stop. So I get up at, you know, 3.30 or whatever. I drive up, and I meet him at the Grover Cleveland rest stop, and, you know, we get a cup of coffee, and I said, what's up? And he said, well, you know, I thought you were briefed by Maine Justice. We've been investigating, you know, the Marshal Service in New Jersey for some um, criminal behavior in the Asset Forfeiture Division. And he says the um, the FBI and GSA, Government Service Administration, GSA, is going to be arresting one of your deputies today and one of your admin people, and they're going to be confiscating the computers in the office. And I'm sitting there saying, holy mackerel, this, this is this is crazy. So he says, I said, well, what do you want me to do? He said, well, I don't want you to go into the office, park on the side of the courthouse, and then when the FBI arrests the deputy before he brings him in for arraignment, they'll tell you and then go in the building. So I said, okay. So um, I asked him the details. I said, what, 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 what was going on? He said, well... This deputy and this one one of his assistants, who was a clerical support staff, um, they were underbidding. They're underestimating how much property would cost, and they were selling it to his brother mm-hmm. and some friends. And they were doing the same thing with high end automobiles. Now, just as a footnote, all asset forfeiture items from the FBI, the DEA. Um, Customs all goes to the marshal service, and we would liquidate them. And literally, that's billions of dollars a year that the, the marshal service sells of houses, of boats, of planes, of, of cars. Everything that gets seized, we sell them. So that's the, that's the background why we have the asset forfeiture. Most of the assets are not from the Marshal Service. They're from DEA or the right. FBI. And, and guys like me working them. as task force officers doing seizures. Exactly. Exactly. And as you know, John, that money goes back into law enforcement. If Baltimore police and DEA worked the case, they would split that equally if they seized a car or money from a um, drug dealer. Well, a lot of times what people didn't realize, and uh, back in my day, we had a, a Maserati Quattroporte and a Corvette and a few other vehicles. That was in Baltimore police. On the DEA side, they had a bunch of different vehicles, including Porsches, which you're thinking, Man, that's my tax money going to buy those cars. No, it's not. They were all seizures. They were seized from drug dealers or other uh, criminals, and they were directly linked to assets that that, that they they acquired from their illegal proceeds. Exactly, exactly. Um, so this deputy was in charge of the asset forfeiture 
for the district in New Jersey. And um, he he's been, he was a deputy for over 20 years, and he was an expert in asset forfeiture. He would teach people around the country how to do asset forfeiture. So, I mean, he, he was he was well-respected in that asset forfeiture area. So um, that cachet gave him some some ability that people wouldn't question him as most as as some you would think people would question some of the activity right um, and, and by so, the way what do they say that uh, that that money or for the love of money is the actual saying is the root of all evil and quite often when someone gets arrested whether it be law enforcement officers or not it's involving money and that's one of the primary motives for any kind of crime you can imagine. Exactly, exactly. John, you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, money. What's the old saying? Money's the root of all of you. Yeah, and exactly. And here's the thing. When there's so much of it around, it's like, yeah, I'll take a little bit here. And innocently enough, people say this. I borrowed a little bit, and I planned on returning it. Well, that's where the problem starts. It wasn't yours to begin with. You had no right to take it. And you can't use someone else's assets to fix your budget. And then inevitably they went up going, well, I'm deeper and deeper and now I can never get caught up. And it's what the old saying. I didn't mean to kill them. It was an accident. Well, you killed them. Nonetheless, we're talking with Jim Plosis. Jim's a very interesting story. He started off as a part-time police officer in the southern part of New Jersey, coastal area. Became elected sheriff, was appointed U.S. Marshal. He is author of the book, co-author book. book is called Jersey Lawman, A Life on the Right Side of Crime by George Ingram and Jim Plosis, which we will talk about in a bit. When we return, we're going to talk more about arresting law enforcement officers and then transition to his experience doing anti-terrorism training missions overseas to the Middle East. This is the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. You can find us on Facebook. Look for and like the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show Facebook page. Don't go anywhere. I promise you. We'll be right back. There's only one official Facebook page for the show. Do a search on Facebook for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and be sure to click like. Discover the exciting world of podcasts at hefepods.com. From captivating stories to life advice and much more, there's a podcast for every interest and passion. Be entertained by your favorite radio personalities in both English and Spanish. Don't waste any more time. Find a great English or Spanish language podcast to follow and discover a world of possibilities in your own language. Find the best podcasts at chefepods.com. Back to our conversation with Jim Plusis on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast. He started his career in law enforcement a long time ago, <laughs> like me. As a part-time police officer, he eventually became a full-time officer, then was elected sheriff, appointed as U.S. Marshal for New Jersey, and he is author of the book, Jersey Lawman, co-author of the book, uh, Life on the Right Side of Crime, by George Ingram and Jim Plusis. Before we went to break, Jim, we're talking about this, this experience where... Your very first day as U.S. Marshal, a law enforcement officer was arrested and a clerk. Now, you, no one wants to have to do this, but it's part of life. And I've had to arrest police officers. I didn't like it. Uh, it's not something I look forward to. It's not something I'm proud of. But you didn't have to actually put the cuffs on them. The investigation started well before you came into office. Am I right? 
Exactly, exactly. Now the uh, um, GSA and the FBI arrested him, and um, so uh, you know, I, um, they brought him into the uh, to be arraigned in the federal courthouse in Newark. You know, the FBI told me I went in. Um, they were taking him to the courtroom. You know, I I did go to the arraignment. I I told my chief I didn't want anybody else in. You know, any of other people from our staff in there, other than me and him, to see the arraignment. Um, he was arraigned and then he was booked. Um, then the FBI and the GSA came into the into the offices, confiscated all the asset forfeiture computers, um, as well as arrested one of the one of one of the clerks that were working on asset forfeiture. Um, I had a meeting with the staff saying, look, you know, during this, you know, we, we, you have to cooperate. It's, you know, it's a, it's a rough day, but you know, they're doing their job. Um, needless to say, you know, this is my first day. Thank heaven. I knew where my office was from the night before, or it would have been even more difficult. Um, we had a number of people crying. I mean, it would, it, 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 it's a way to start the first yeah. day. Um, so I can't think of a worse day, way, actually. The only thing worse would be an officer being killed. The only thing I can think of that could possibly be worse. Exactly. So after we got the, the FBI left taking the computers, the other person got arraigned. Um, they both were able to post bail. Um, I go in the office and I call Washington. I call the Marshal Service headquarters to advise them what happened. And um, I call down there and I um, get the deputy director and I said, um, you know, we arrested two of our staff, one deputy, one one cler- clerical staff today. I said, um, who do you want me to refer this to at in Washington? And I'll never forget, he says, we want you to handle it in district. And I said, um, Deputy Director, what does that mean? They said, well, we want you to handle it. And I said, well, direct, Deputy Director, I've only been on the job for around five hours. Do you, do you really think I should be the one? <laughs> and he let said, me yeah, guess what their answer district. was. They didn't care. <laughs> right? I, I, I laugh about it now, and I'm sitting there after I got off the phone. I said, how the heck am I going to, you know, talk about this arrest? So. I call over to the U.S. Attorney's Office. As I say, I know Christy well, and he gives me a little bit of a, you know, details on the arrest. I said, well, I'm not going to get in details. I said, I'm just going to get involved with what corrective steps I'm going to take immediately. Now, I was very lucky because as a county sheriff, we also liquidated asset forfeiture items. Right. So I had sold cars. Um, I and of course sheriff sales. I was familiar with selling properties, so I had some experience. And I so I wrote myself some notes saying, "This is what I'll do when I have to speak to the press." So my chief deputy comes in and he says, um, "Marshal, all the media is out in the hallway. What are you going to do with them?" Um, so again, I'm this is my first day. I really don't know the, the, the building that well, and. Um, I've been around long enough, and they tell you never do a press conference in your office because you can't get out of it. Right. You're pinned in. But I, I told the chief, I said, bring him in my office. We'll do it in here. So um, I did a press conference, and I, I explained to him that, you know, the deputy was arrested and what the charges were, what the charges were against the clerk. And then I went into the um, 
corrective steps that I was immediately going to put in place, that I was going to put in a rotation for the deputies, that we wouldn't have one guy do it for 20 years. We would rotate the assessors of the property. We wouldn't use the same assessor or the same realtor year after year. We would put it out for for proposals and we would rotate them. And I, I put in some other corrective measures. Ironically, that down the road, the marshal service had me, you know, go over this case and teach other U.S. marshals and their staff, you know, how, the, you know, what the red flags were to look for that somebody might be going, you know, to the other side. So it was a, it was a, it was a crazy first day. Fast forward, um, the deputy was convicted. The clerk was convicted. The deputy's brother was convicted. One realtor was also convicted, who was also an assessor. Um, so four people ended up being arrested and charged and convicted in um, court on this matter. And as I say, you know, we put in a lot of corrective steps, not only in New Jersey, but around the country to prevent that from happening again. Yeah, but, I, I don't know, you know of anybody in my police career that would tolerate that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, people think that we turn a blind eye to corruption. And I, I can tell you, in my experience as a police officer, that never happened. We, And when someone got arrested, as a matter of fact, we would even go so far as to say, well, they must be guilty of something. Otherwise, why'd they be cuffing them? Exactly, exactly. And, and in all my days, I... You know, I, even as sheriff, I'm trying to think back if I ever... I, uh, I, I did have one one jail deputy arrested at one time for yeah. um, inappropriate contact with an inmate that we had to charge. But in all my days, that was the only the only case. It's there. few and far between. And I, I say it, no one wants to do it because look, I didn't want to arrest anybody particularly on the street, but you did it. That was part of the job. It wasn't the overwhelming majority of the job. The overwhelming majority of the job was handling life issues that weren't even criminal based and, and there was nothing to do with breaking the law. So as a U.S. Marshal, that's a t- totally different ball of wax. And I, I understand you wound up having to do some anti-terrorism training overseas, didn't you? Yeah, I was fortunate enough um, to, to be invited in 1991, um, right at the end of Desert Storm, um, the um, Anti-Defamation League was setting up some some law enforcement training for New Jersey to go over to the Middle East, to um, Lebanon, Israel, and Jordan um, for some anti-terrorism training. And I, I was, at the time, president of the Sheriff's Association. So um, they had the president of the Sheriff's Association, president of the Chiefs of Police, president of the DA's Association, the colonel of the state police, and the attorney general go over there on an eight-day mission to um, see best practices in regards to what the um, Israelis and what they were doing with the Jordanians in regards to terrorism. So I was I was honored to go on that trip. Um, ironically, the colonel of the state police, Justin Dentino at the time, couldn't go, so he sent his number two in command, Lieutenant Colonel Fred Marone. Um, so Fred and I were roommates for the eight days where we were there. During the trip, we covered the gamut. We, um, you know, as you know, their military is very active in in security over there and anti-terrorism. So we spent half of our time with the military and then half of the time with the, with the with the police as well as the Mossad. 
And the, 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 all those organizations are, are top-notch. And, and by the way, that was 1991. They're still in the news today. Uh, not every one of those countries, but many of them are. And a lot of the issues that you dealt with back then are still going on. Exactly, John. It, it's a shame. And, I, you know, when we were there, um, it, it was just it, it was the very it was a week after the desert storm ended. Um, so they took us to where I don't you know, if you remember back where Saddam Hussein was sending scud rockets in the Tel Aviv yep. and other parts of Israel. So we did we did cover some of the areas if that were I damaged by correctly, the He was trying to get the, go the Israelis in, into joining the war, which would have changed uh, the participation of Saudi Arabia and some other countries. We're talking with Jim Pelosis. When we return, we're going to wrap up the conversation about the anti-terrorism training overseas because some of them still applies today, and there is an interesting some would say bizarre twist. Then we're going to talk about his book and how it helps raise money for a very worthwhile organization. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. If you want to be a guest on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, simply contact us. It couldn't be easier. You can send us a message on Facebook. Look for and like the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show page or email j at letradio.com. That's jay at letradio.com. Turn our conversation with Jim Plosis on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast. My name is John J. Welly. Jim, by the way, I cannot keep it straight. I'll, I'm being sarcastic. He was a part-time summer police officer, became a full-time police officer, became elected sheriff in New Jersey, was appointed U.S. Marshal in New Jersey. Now he's doing something with the state gambling casino commissions. And he's co-author of the book, Jersey Lawman. Great name, by the way, A Life on the Right Side of Crime by George Ingram and Jim Plosis, which we will talk about in a few moments. I want to go back to you're going overseas for the anti-terrorism mission and training in the Middle East. And a lot of the organizations involved, the Anti-Defamation League, we're, we're talking about things nowadays that you would think would have been put to bed 30 years ago with... Um, and, and I get everybody has a right to speak, but when you are threatening people's lives and you're talking about killing people based off their ethnicity or religion, I got a severe problem with that, and I always think I will have. No doubt about it, John. It's it's a shame. It's a shame that you know that we're you know as you say, thirty years later, you know we're hearing some of this rhetoric. It it, it it's a sad time in America. Yeah, it's it's still going on, and it's like. I, I, Jim, I'm not going to ask you to comment on this, but when people feel like it's okay for them to say something that's blatantly uh, genocidal, wanting to kill people, I got a severe issue with that. And I really do, from our colleges on down. If you support that kind of stuff, I'm going to tell you right now, I am not your guy that you want to talk to. I'm not going to be that person. I'm not going to agree with you and say, oh, yeah, that's okay. Exactly. Exactly. No, I, you know, any kind of rhetoric like that, it's in, it's inflammatory all the way around. And, um, you know, we have a mental health issue in this country. And, you know, when we talk like that, some, some of these people act on these responses. They, do. they certainly do. No. So you, you went overseas for this training. And one of the, the guys you went with, I say guy, that could be men or women, because in law enforcement, where I, where I worked, we called each other guys. And that included everybody. We didn't care. Exactly. So one of the guys exactly. you worked with, he wound up being on scene for the terror attacks at 9-11, weren't they? 
Well, as I mentioned, um, when we were there, we would, we, you know, two of us would bunk either. You know, we we stayed with the Eighth Armor Division over there. We we stayed in a number of kibbutzes, so we would bunk together. And ironically, my bunk mate was Fred Marone, the Lieutenant Colonel of the State Police, um, great guy. Um, you know, mountain of a guy. Um, so we we would bunk together and of course talk. And um, he had three sons. I had a son and a daughter. So we would talk about our you know our families and all. Great guy. Um, so ironically, when we got back, he had, he had left the um, New Jersey State Police, um, and he he was hired by the New York New Jersey Port Authority Police as the superintendent. So um, he was working there for around a year. Um, now. Their main headquarters is in Hoboken. And when 9-11 hit, he was in Hoboken at his headquarters. He went over to help evacuate um, the, the the second tower. And um, he was evacuating the second tower when it collapsed. And um, ironically, um, he passed away. He was one of the 32 um, Port Authority officers that lost their lives on 9-11. But, um, you know, he was a great guy, and um, he truly died a hero. And I, I I, would expect Fred to be one of the first in the building trying to save people. And sure enough, he was, even though, he, you know, he's the superintendent of a 3,000-person right. organization. He was, you know, he was leading from the front. And from a lot of people are not familiar with Hoboken, New Jersey, that part of New Jersey and New York, you can actually see New York across the river from Hoboken. Exactly, um, and that's a great point there, John. Um, my my marshal service office is in Newark, and when I started as marshal, the um, the World Trade Centers were still burning. We could see the smoke from that from the office. I mean, as you know, it burned for literally mo- almost a month. I, I got to switch gears because there, there is a movement of certain people that are anti anti police, and I, I'm not going to quote some of the things they say. But they seem to have forgotten how many people, police officers, firefighters, died that day. And the, the even more that have died from 9-11 related cancers and illnesses from working, trying to rescue people at, at the scenes. And I, I don't know how to remind them of that. John, that's a great point. I mean, nobody's going into law enforcement to become rich. They're doing it for public service. And I mean, you know, they, they run to run where people are running away from, either a fire or a shooting. Um, you know, truly, all our local, all our law enforcement are, are, are true heroes. I mean, they're doing things that people, you know, don't want to do. Yeah. And I, I, I've gotten to the point now where I just don't even engage with people. What's the old saying is that, you know, you can't beat common sense into stupid people. You just wind up with bloody knuckles and they're still stupid. So it, I don't even try anymore. And it's, it's also a psychological thing. I'm not going to be goaded into a conversation somewhere someone wants to take me when it's going to take me off of my path of, of what I want to accomplish. So I got to transition. Because you made a change. You and Jim Ingram, George Ingram, rather, wrote a book, Jersey Lawman, A Life on the Right Side of Crime. What possessed you to write this book? I, ironically, John, I didn't want to write the book. Um, George. Wait a minute. Wait a George, minute. You didn't want to be sheriff. You didn't want to be U.S. <laughs> Marshal. And you didn't want to write the book. Look, three strikes, you're out. Baseball rules. Uh, I'm, I'm not buying that. Uh, um, George Ingram, um, he, he, he wrote another book, and um, he was a newspaper reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer. 
very smart man. And then um, he ended up being vice president at Temple University in charge of communication. And um, he, he approached me a number of times saying, I want to write a book. I want to write a book. And I said, George, I really don't want it. And then he knew that I was on the board of directors of the United States Marshal Service Survivor Fund. Survivor Fund pays for the funerals of officers, deputy U.S. Marshals, and special deputy U.S. Marshals, state and locals, that are killed in the line of duty. So George said to me, look, we'll write the book and we'll give 100% of the proceeds to the Marshal Service Survivor Fund. And I said, George, if you want to do that, I, I'll then I'll agree. And he said, no problem. Let's do it that way. So God bless George Ingram. He passed away around a year ago. Um, great guy. He spent five years working on the book. And, um, you know, the, the book has been um, successful. You know, we won some national awards for the book. Um, and all the money, every penny has went to the Marshall Survivor Fund. And um, last year, the Survivor Fund paid for two funerals of officers killed in the line of duty. And that's a, that's a tough subject to talk about. So please uh, uh, excuse me while I skirt around that issue. And look, I, I, I still get emotional when I think about officers I worked with that were killed in the line of duty. And one of the things I do... Uh, is there's a couple of Facebook pages that that I run. One, of course, is the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast Facebook page. Another one's called True Crime Fighters. And in True Crime Fighters, what I do is I feature law enforcement officers that died in the line of duty uh, on that date. And it's about every three hours apart because they, they deserve to be mentioned. They deserve to be remembered. And the one thing I can take from every survivor I've talked to is they don't want their loved one to be forgotten. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I, you're right. You know, as long as we remember them, you know, it, 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 you know, their service wasn't in vain. Right. And as what you're saying, Jim, it's not how they died that made them heroes. It's how they lived. Exactly. 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 Um, so, so you got a great Johnny, name, Jersey Lawman, a life on the right side of crime. Who came up with that title? Was that you or is that George? That was George. That was George. Um, we were kicking around the title, and, um, you know, he thought it was appropriate. And, um, you know, I, I've been lucky. There's, You know, I've served at every level of law enforcement, the local, the county, the state, and the federal. So um, George thought that that would be appropriate, that, you know, um, not too many people around have served at every level of law enforcement no. in the country. So um, he thought that would work. And where can people get more information about Jersey Lawman? By the way, I said again, that's a great title. <laughs> I, I I can see you not wanting to say, no, I don't think I can go for that one. Jersey Lawman. And I think of the outlaw of Josie Wales for some reason when I think of that. Back in those spaghetti Western days. Where can people get more information about it? I'm sure it's available online. It, the, the book, yeah, the book is any, any, um, any, um, major book um, store online. You can get the book. We have a website, jerseylawman.com. If you want information, um, we have, you know, a, you know, a lot of followers there. We do post when we're doing a book signing or some other public event, or if we're, you know, um, we've gotten donations from libraries who've, who had the book and I'll, I'll go speak at the library and all. So, um, as I say, and if you want more information, if you go on the U S Marshall survivor fund, um, website, it tells you about, you know, the, you know, the, the officers we lost on the line of duty and, and, and Jim, I'm going to cut you off. Does. Thanks so much for being a guest on the law enforcement talk radio show. Thanks for your service. All very much appreciated. Thank you, John. My honor. 
I'd like to thank our guests for coming on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. The Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show is a nationally syndicated weekly radio show broadcast on numerous AM and FM radio stations across the country. We're always adding more affiliate stations. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, which is always free, please do me a favor and tell a friend or two or three. I'll be back in just a few days with another episode of the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.